Welcome to the Equipping You in Grace podcast, hosted by Dave Jenkins. The Equipping You in Grace podcast is a podcast about helping Christians develop a biblical worldview in a conversational tone about issues inside and outside the church. Now, for today's episode, let's join our host, Dave Jenkins. Well, welcome back to the Equip You in Grace podcast. My name is Dave, and I'm the host for this show. And on today's episode, I want to talk with you about something that we've been talking about for a while now, and that is the fruits of the Spirit. But before we get to there today, I want to share with you why we're going there. And the first thing I want to say is this, that, you know, today marks 23 years in my current role as the Executive Director of Servants of Grace Ministries. At 19 years old, I started this ministry, and I never thought that, you know, it would become what it has, um, reaching people from almost every country all over the world through our articles, through our podcasts, through our magazine. And you know what? To God be the glory for that. Um, He just wants us, as MacArthur talks about often, to focus on the the depth of our ministry and god will take care of the breadth of our ministry so all glory to the lord but as i've thought about this uh yearly episode coming up now for a while um i i thought you know what since we've been talking about the fruits of the spirit it'd be good if we delve into those fruits of the spirit talking about what the holy spirit is producing in the life of those who were united to Christ by faith in his name. And that is so important. Now, Galatians 5, it it closes with important instruction for every Christian who's in union with Christ and in communion with him. Galatians 5, 19 through 21, it describes the fruitless existence of the flesh or the sinful nature. And then the verses that follow uh, describe the fruitful and the productive work of the Holy Spirit in the life of the Christian. And the contrast is as absolute as a difference between life and death. The Apostle Paul has already explained that the flesh and the spirit are mortal enemies locked in deadly combat. The passions of the sinful nature are at war with the desires of the regenerate nature, as we see in Galatians 5.17. This warfare takes place within the heart, the mind, the soul, and the body of the believer. And in this conflict, the Christian is ordered to live by the Spirit rather than to indulge the flesh. And so to follow these orders, the Christian needs to know the difference between the flesh and the Spirit, between the sinful nature and the regenerate nature. The difference is not hard to tell, as Paul tells us in Galatians 5, 19-21. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these, he says. Catalogs of vices were common in the ancient world, and the Galatians would have encountered lists like this before. There are other examples of this in the New Testament, such as Romans 1, 29-31, and 2 Timothy 3, 2-5, and also in the writings of many classic authors. No two lists are the same, either in the Bible or in the pagan literature. In fact, the sins in this list are so familiar that they really require very little explanation. The catalog, though, begins with sexual immorality, which is sometimes called fornication in the Bible. 
This general term was used to refer to any kind of sexual sin, but especially to sexual intercourse between persons who are not married to one another. Sexual sin was common in the pagan world, as was impurity, which refers not only to sexual sin, but to any kind of uncleanliness. Sensuality is indecency, a lack of respect for what is right and good. It involves not only engaging in wanton behavior, but flaunting it in public. Idolatry means the worship of other gods. It is the quest to find our identity and security in anything other than the true God. Witchcraft or sorcery is the worship of what is evil. This would include contemporary forms of the occult, such as black magic and Satan worship. However, the Greek word that's used here for witchcraft, pharmakia, provides the origin for the English word pharmacy. This is a reminder that in the ancient world, witches often prepared and administered lethal poisons. Thus, the postmodern parallels to ancient witchcraft would include abortion and even euthanasia forms of killing that in our culture are usually performed by doctors. According to the Bible, these activities are among the self-evidently wicked deeds of the flesh. Now, many of the other advices of Paul's list relate to a breakdown of the Christian community. Thus, they confirm what we might suspect, namely that divisiveness was a major problem in the Galatian church. The Greek word for enmity, ekorthria, is closely related to the Greek word for enemy, ekthros. This form of hatred included any kind of political, racial, religious hostility, whether that was in public or private. Strife is rivalry or discord, which comes from a quarrelsome spirit. Jealousy is the wrong kind of zeal, such as Paul had before he became a Christian, as we see in Philippians 3.6. It often leads to fits of anger, the rage-filled outbursts that come from having a bad temper. Aristotle compared this term to dogs that bark if there is but a knock at the door before looking to see if it is a friend. And the list goes on and on, for the sinful nature produces a seemingly endless stream of sins. Some people want to get ahead at the expense of others, and so they are engaging in rivalries. Others take sides, causing dissensions and divisions. In fact, the English word for heresy comes from the Greek term for divisions, heresias. And indeed, theological error always divides the church, as a clear separation must be made between true and false doctrine, as we often do on this show. And yet, we must also ask, what are some other works of the flesh? And people tend to be unhappy when others succeed, and, uh, and the proper term for such a grudging spirit is envy. The envious, said Socrates, are, are pained by their friends' successes. In fact, to give a more contemporary example, envy is a vice depicted in the cartoon that featured a dog sitting at a bar saying, it is not just that dogs have to win, but cats have to lose. And whenever we rejoice at the misfortune of others, including our friends, we are guilty of envy. And finally, there are two more sins of the body, drinking to excess and eating to excess, drunkenness and orgies. The Bible does not prohibit alcohol any more than it prohibits food, but it always condemns getting drunk. The term used here refers to drinking bouts, what people today would call getting wasted. The orgies to which Paul refers to were not simply sexual. They involved wild, wild partying of all kinds, including revels held at pagan temples. Later in the chapter, the apostle adds several more sins to his list in Galatians 5.26, which says, Let us not become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. This verse is about spiritual pride, the work of the flesh that destroys fellowship. 
If the proud think that they're superior, they provoke others by putting them down. Those who feel inferior, on the other hand, envy others and resent their success. Either way, that destroys relationship. All in all, it's quite the list. It includes social sins, it includes sexual sins, sins about the body and the soul, sins common among Christians as well as pagans. Paul ends his catalog this way, things like these to show that he could keep going. But his point has less to do with any particular sin than it does with the entire lifestyle that these acts of flesh, the flesh represent. The only thing that the sinful nature can produce is an unchaste, unholy, uncharitable, and undisciplined life. This is plain for everybody to see. The sinfulness of these sinful nature is so obvious as to be self-evident, partly because we have committed so many of these deadly deeds ourselves. In fact, the Puritan William Perkins said, this list of vices is a mirror to reflect the corruption of our sinful hearts. In fact, what Paul says next is most alarming. Having listed the deeds of the flesh, he goes on to warn where these naturally lead to, or where they do not lead in Galatians 5.21. He says, I warn you as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. Now, this sounds like an echo from the teaching of Jesus, who had a great deal to say about the coming of God's kingdom. And yet what Paul means by the kingdom is God's final kingdom, the place of Jesus' eternal rule, namely heaven. To inherit God's kingdom is to come into its rightful possession by receiving the free gift of eternal life in Christ alone. Paul had warned the Galatians about this before. He had told them that while good works cannot get somebody into heaven, evil deeds can certainly keep them out of it. People who perform the acts of the sinful nature will not inherit the kingdom of God. It is perhaps significant that it refers to the deeds of the flesh as works of the flesh. This is a reminder that our works cannot save us. Whether they are the works of the law, the works of the flesh, or any other kind of works, they do not lead to heaven. Now, the question becomes, does this mean that anyone who is guilty of any of the vices that Paul describes in Galatians 5, 19-21 is going to hell? Well, certainly anybody who commits these sins deserves to go to hell. And for this very reason, we should not think lightly of these sins or any other sin. But we need to remember that the Christian, even the spirit-filled Christian, still has a sinful nature. And from time to time, therefore, even believers commit these very sins. And with this in mind, it's important to know that when Paul refers to those who do such things in Galatians 5.21, the Greek word is prostosinos. It indicates habitual action, not an occasional lapse. Paul is not talking about Christians who, from time to time, commit one of these sins against their better judgment, all the while knowing that they are grieving the Holy Spirit and wishing they could stop. Rather, Paul is talking about the people whose lives are dominated by sin, who are committed heart and soul to immorality, idolatry, sorcery, and envy. This is not the kind of life that leads to heaven, quite the opposite. Why would somebody who loves to break God's rules even want to go to the place where God's rules are always kept? People who make a regular practice of vice need to repent of their sins and leave their old lifestyle behind, lest they fall into eternal judgment. But what about Christians who feel perhaps with some justification they're dominated by and are enslaved uh, to pornography or even anorexia? They should heed Paul's warning that people who live this way do not inherit the kingdom of God, but they should not despair. 
The very fact that if you're concerned about your spiritual condition, it shows that the Spirit is at work, and He will always enable uh, Christians to live a life that is more and more pleasing to God. Now, there's a reason why the flesh produces such bad behavior. It is simply doing what comes naturally. Jesus says this in Matthew 12, 33. Either make the tree good and its fruit good, or make the tree bad and its fruit bad. For the tree is known by its fruit. The sinful nature produces sin because it was a bad tree to start with. And the spirit, by contrast, is a good tree producing lush and abundant fruit. Paul says this in Galatians 5, 22 through 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. The greatest of these, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 13, is love, which is the highest of all the virtues and the foundation of all godliness. Love is not one virtue among the list of virtues, but the sum, the substance of what it means to be a Christian. Now, the Greek word used here for love is agape. It seems to have been patented by the new writers of the New Testament. It is the kind of selfless, sacrificial affection that enables us to serve one another in love, as Paul is talking about in Galatians 5.22. Love is also what we return to God, who first loved us through the suffering and death of his Son, and then poured his love into our hearts through the Holy Spirit, as we see in Romans 5.5. Then comes joy, which is not so much happiness as contentment. Joy is the ability to take good cheer from the gospel. It is not, therefore, a spontaneous response to some temporary pleasure. It does not depend on circumstances at all. It's, it's based, rather, on rejoicing in one's eternal identity in Christ. And with joy comes peace, a sense of wholeness, a sense of well-being. John MacArthur says this, If, if joy speaks of exhilaration of the heart that comes from being right with God— then peace refers to the tranquility of mind that comes from saving relationships. Such tranquility may be enjoyed both with God and with others. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1 says. And since we have peace with God, we are able to be at and be at peace with others as well. And like peace, the next several virtues bring harmony to human relationships. Patience is long-suffering in the face of hardship, the ability to endure through adversity. A patient person is a slow fuse. They, have a, uh, they are steadfast. They are persistent. They are willing to suffer aggravation or even persecution without complaint. Kindness is more than a random act of consideration. It is a constant readiness to help the extension of God's grace to people around us through practical actions of care. Closely related to goodness, which was a more common general term for a virtue among the pagans, it connotates moral excellence. Here it is sanctified by the Holy Spirit. It indicates a willingness to be generous. Next comes faithfulness, the trustworthiness that comes from trusting in the God of the Bible. The faithful person is reliable for important tasks. They're loyal to friends. They're dependable in emergencies. With faithfulness goes gentleness, an inward grace that is sometimes called meekness. It's often described as power under control. The gentle person has a sweet temper of spirit towards God and others and, a daily, uh, and the daily frustrations of life. They're not prone to anger, but humble, sweet, and mild. Finally, there's self-control, which means temperance or moderation, especially in sensual matters like drinking, uh, eating, and sex. This sober virtue pre uh, prevents liberty from becoming a license in the Christian life. 
A person with self-control has the restraint and the self-discipline not to be ruled by passion and therefore is able to resist temptation. This catalog of spiritual virtues is not exhaustive. Paul hints at this when he refers to the fruit of the Spirit as such things in Galatians 5.23. Some graces that are not on this list, such as hope, for example, or godliness, they appear also in the New Testament. Once again, the point is not so much the specific character traits as it is the entire lifestyle they represent. All the graces of the Spirit, they belong together. This explains why the word fruit occurs in the singular. The fruit of the Spirit is one whole spiritual life that is rooted in the one Spirit of God. To change the image for a moment, these virtues are not nine different gems, but nine different facets of the same dazzling jewel. Spiritual fruit is different from the spiritual gifts in this respect, since most Christians only have a handful of gifts. But one does not pick and choose among the spiritual fruit the way one sorts through fruit and vegetables at the supermarket. There's only one fruit, which every Christian produces, albeit in varying quantities and with different degrees of sweetness. Now, the contrast between the special produce of the Spirit and the bitter fruit of the sinful nature could hardly be sharper now. The fruit of the Spirit is the very opposite of the works of the flesh. When it comes to godliness, the Spirit really produces. He brings forth good fruit from the good tree, the product of a whole new spiritual nature in Christ. One helpful way to study uh, this passage in Galatians is to contrast the fruit of the Spirit with what might be called the weeds of the devil. Each fruit has its opposite, a weed that tries to choke it out. In fact, many of the weeds grow in Paul's list of vices that we've walked through in Galatians 5, 19-21. The weeds that try to choke out love is enmity. Dissension stunts the growth of peace. Patience is crowded out by anger. The weed that grows around self-control is sensuality, and so on and so forth. Another way to study these fruits of the Spirit is to compare it to the character of God. Love, peace, goodness, faithfulness, these are all divine attributes. We see them displayed in the work of God the Son, who is patient in suffering, faithful to his disciples, gentle with children, and loving in his kindness to sinners. James Dunn rightly calls Galatians 5, 22-23 a character sketch of Christ. Since the Spirit is the Spirit of Christ, it is only natural for him to reproduce the virtues of Christ in the life of the Christian. Jesus is the vine, we are the branches, as we see in John uh, 15, 5. The Holy Spirit connects us to the vine and thereby produces in us the fruit of Christ himself. We do not grow this fruit on our own. This is why it is called the fruit of the Spirit rather than the works of the Spirit. S. H. Hook comments, A vine does not produce grapes by act of parliament. They are the fruit of, of the vine's own life. So the conduct which conforms to the standard of the kingdom is not produced by any demand, not even God's, but it is the fruit of that divine nature which God gives as a result of what he has done in and by Christ. And so the fruit of the Spirit is the natural produce of his gracious inward influence, the spontaneous and the inevitable result of his uniting us to Jesus Christ. It's going to take time to grow, but grow it must, for God will make it grow. What we're to do in the meantime is to cultivate spiritual fruit. Now, notice that this is a catalog of virtues rather than a list of rules. Perhaps this is why Paul ends by saying in Galatians 5.23, Against such things there is no law. This is a deliberate understatement. 
The reason there is no law against these virtues is that they are positively lawful, and thus people who practice them fulfill the law. This does not mean that the Spirit issues a command for every situation. In fact, if we think of this list as a how-to guide for the Christian life, we're in danger of slipping back into a works righteousness. Remember, we're not under the law, and nevertheless, the Spirit is not lawless. His liberty does not lead to license. However, he, he works in us those dispositions that lead to godliness. His fruit is habits of the heart that produce a rich harvest of loving obedience. The life that the Spirit produces in us conforms us to the very law that cannot justify us. Donald Hegner says this, We are set free from the law in order to produce a righteousness that corresponds to the righteousness that the law demanded. The content of the law has not fundamentally changed. It is only the dynamic, the means by which we can arrive at righteousness that differs dramatically. Living out the righteousness of the law does not result in a right relationship with God. Rather, being in a right relationship with God through faith in Christ results in living out of the righteousness of the law. In, in time, it becomes almost natural to live in the Spirit, except that is really supernatural. J.I. Packer writes this, Holiness is the naturalness of the spiritually risen man, just as Christ is the naturalness of the spiritually dead man. And in pursuing holiness by obeying God, the Christian actually follows the deepest urges of his own renewed being. We do not have to live like legalists to fulfill the law. What we need is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit does not produce fruit in the Christian life without our cooperation. There are two things that every Christian must do to remain fruitful. The first is to mortify the flesh. Paul states this in Galatians 5.24, And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. Mortification is one of the most misunderstood and neglected doctrines of the Christian faith, but it is also one of the most important. In fact, spiritual growth is hardly possible without it. Mortification is what Paul was talking about when he said this in Romans 6.11, Consider yourselves dead to sin. It simply means putting sin to death, where the Puritan writer uh, William Ames called the wasting away of sin. You see, the spirit is engaged in mortal combat with the flesh. The desires of the regenerate nature wage war against the passions of the sinful nature. And in this war, there, there'll be no truce. The spiritual nature cannot enter into peace negotiations with the sinful nature, nor can it surrender. The spirit must battle sin to the death. And therefore, when the spirit captures the flesh, he does not simply hold it as a prisoner. He commits the ultimate act of war. The spirit puts the sinful nature to death. And not just any death, the means of execution is crucifixion. This is how John Stott explains it. To take up the cross was our Lord's vivid a figure of speech for self-denial. Every follower of Christ is to behave like a condemned criminal and carry his cross to the place of execution. Now, Paul takes the metaphor to its logical conclusion. We must not only take up our cross and walk with it, but actually see that the execution takes place. We are actually to take the flesh, our willful and wafered self, and nail it to the cross, Dot says. Now, consider how appropriate it is for the sinful nature to be crucified. Crucifixion was a shameful way to die. It was reserved for hardened criminals, for traitors and murderers, the scum of society. But what is more shameful than the sinful nature which rebels against God and murders the human soul? 
Crucifixion was a painful way to die, as, a, a, as painful a means of execution as human beings have ever devised. It was excruciating in the full and the proper sense of the word. And yet the mortification of sin is painful. It's not painful to the body as if we have to abuse ourselves in order to please God, but to the soul. The reason sanctification is such a painful process is that there is always something excruciating about putting our sin to death. Our sinful nature loves it so much that we secretly hope that it'll live. Crucifixion was a gradual way to die, with its victims often lingering on the cross for days before they drew their last breath. John Brown says this, Crucifixion was a punishment appropriated to the worst crimes of the basest sort of criminals and produced death not just suddenly but gradually. Certainly, he says, true Christians do not succeed in completely destroying the flesh while here below, but they have fixed it to the cross, and they are determined to keep it there till it expire. And when it comes to eliminating sin, there's no shortcuts, only a long, slow, painful death. And the last thing to be said about crucifixion is it was always final. Those who were crucified may have died slowly, but they always died eventually because soldiers ensured that the victims were not taken down from their crosses until they were really and truly dead. The same is true in the spirit's war against the flesh. God is not fighting a losing battle. The sinful nature has already received its mortal blow, and the Spirit will see to it that it remains on the cross until it expires. The question is not if it will die, but only when. Sin received this death blow on the cross of Christ. We find the death of our own sinful nature and the death of Christ through what J.I. Packer calls co-crucifixion with Jesus Christ. There is a connection between Galatians 5.24 and Galatians 2.20, which says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. But notice there's one very important difference here. We are crucified. In chapter 5, we do the crucifying. And those who belong to Christ, Jesus, have crucified the flesh, Galatians 5.24 says. This verse describes a crucifixion carried out by those who are literally of Christ. In other words, God's own people are the executioners. Since the verb is expressed in the past tense, we know that this event has already taken place. But when, you might ask? We first crucified the sinful nature at our conversion, when we came to faith in Christ. At that time, we went to Calvary where Christ was crucified. There we were united to him in his death. And when we put our trust in him, it was not only to die for our sins, but also to put our sins to death. The cross of Christ means death to our flesh. And so the trouble is that our sinful nature has a way of trying to climb back down from the cross. And when it does, it is able to make a remarkably speedily recovery, partly because we have a way of helping it. We are sometimes tempted to remove the nails to help our old sinful nature down from the cross and to nurse it back to health. This is why we struggle with so-called besetting sins, sins that we commit so often they become bad habits. And yet this has to stop. Do not administer first aid to your flesh. Instead, treat it the way Jesus was treated at Calvary. Mortify, put to death your sin. Put it to death. From time to time, whenever it shows signs of life, oh, no, you don't. Don't try to climb down from the cross. Get back up on that cross where you belong. And then pound the nails in a bit deeper. If you belong to Christ, you have crucified your sinful nature with all of its sinful desires. Do not resuscitate it. Do not give it CPR. Do not keep it on life support. Just leave it on the cross and let it die. 
There are two sides to sanctification in the Christian life. One is mortification, the putting to death of the sinful nature. The other is vivification, the coming to life of the regenerate nature. And at the same time, we are putting our flesh to death. We are being revived by the Holy Spirit. These two aspects of sanctification, mortification and vivification, go together. As John Calvin said, the death of the flesh is the life of the Spirit. And this brings us to the second thing that the Christian must do to remain faithful, which is to walk with the Spirit. Galatians 5.25 says, If we live by the Spirit, let us also walk by the Spirit. Now, in this verse, as he often does, the Apostle Paul follows an indicative with an imperative. An indicative is what Christ has done. An imperative is what we are to do in light of what Christ has called us to be. So he's telling us to become what we are. In fact, this is a fact. Those who belong to Jesus live in the Spirit. At regeneration, the Holy Spirit enters the heart of every Christian. And yet we must keep on living in the Spirit, which is precisely what the Galatians were failing to do. Paul had already asked them in Galatians 3.3, Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? By starting and then stopping in this way, the Galatians had fallen out of step with God's Spirit. When the Apostle Paul speaks of keeping in step in Galatians 5.25, what he's talking about is following orders. The, the Greek term for keeping in step, it comes from the military. It means to stay in formation. First, soldiers would line up in ranks and files, and then in order to maintain good military discipline, they would stay in line as they march. Now, soldiers not only march in formation, but they also run in formation. And when they do, there is only one thing they have to worry about, which is keeping in step. They do not need to worry about where they're going or how they're going to get there. They do not need to guess how much farther where they're going or how they're going to get there. They do not need to guess how much farther they're going to have to go. Their commanding officer will give them the orders as necessary. The only thing soldiers need to know is how to keep in step in time. It's the same in the Christian life. The Holy Spirit is God's drill sergeant. It is his job to help us keep in line. As he barks out the cadence, all we have to do is keep our pace in the formation, running in step with the commands of God revealed in the word. This analogy, it shows us where we ought to be in relation to other Christians. We do not run alone. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are right there beside us. Ideally, we are matching them stride for side. As long as we maintain good discipline, there will not be any pushing and shoving in the rakes, the kind of provoking and the envying that Paul warns about in Galatians 5, 6. Instead, by staying in formation, we'll maintain our unity in the Spirit. A good unit never lets one of its men fall behind. If a soldier stops running because of injury, discouragement, or fatigue, his buddies will circle around him and gather him back into the unit. And so also in the church, we're called to maintain unity by going back to help those who have fallen. Now, keeping in step, it takes discipline, but so does spiritual growth. The Holy Spirit rarely works in extraordinary ways. In fact, he uses ordinary means of grace to bring about spiritual growth. The reading and the preaching of the word, the sacraments of baptism and communion, and the life of prayer, contrary to what so many Christians seem to believe, true spiritual growth does not come from some special experience of the Holy Spirit. Instead, it comes from walking with the Spirit every day until finally keeping in step with Him becomes a holy habit. J.I. Packer explains how the Spirit works is worth quoting here at length. 
He says the, the Spirit works through means, through the objective means of grace, namely biblical truth, prayer, fellowship, worship, and the Lord's Supper, and with them through the subjective means of grace, whereby we open ourselves to change, namely thinking, listening, questioning oneself, examining oneself, uh, teach, instructing and encouraging oneself, sharing what is in one's heart with others, and weighing any response they make. The Spirit shows us power in us, not by interrupting our use of the means with visions, impressions, or even prophecies, but by making these regular means effective to change us for the better and for the wiser as we go along. He says, habit forming is the Spirit's ordinary way of leading us on in holiness. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All of them are habitual, ways of thinking, feeling, and behaving. And Packer goes on to stress that holiness by habit forming is not self-sanctification by self-effort, but it is simply a matter of understanding the Spirit's method and then keeping in step with them. See, this is how God desires for us to grow. The more we keep in step with the Holy Spirit through the Word, sacraments, and prayer, the more fruitful we become. And this is why we keep I keep mentioning the fruits of the Spirit in these episodes. These are the very things that God, by His grace, is teaching every single Christian united to Christ by faith in His name. That means that no matter, as J.C. Ryle would said, no matter if there's one sliver, one little sliver, one tiny uh, sliver at even the, the molecular level of evidence that that God is producing the fruits in your in your of the Spirit in your life, then you should rejoice in the Lord. You should give thanks to the Lord because that is God by His grace producing those things in you. These are the things that the Spirit is producing in us, so that we can become more like Christ. This is why we come back and we talk about the fruits of the Spirit so often. Because you know what? That difficult person is staring you in the face every day as you're combing your hair, as you're getting ready for the day. And that's, that's a sobering truth. You see, as Christians, we have indwelling sin. That's why we're to put sin to death, because of the grace of God. Because God has taken our heart of stone and he's given us a new heart with new desires and new affections for himself. That is why Paul can say, consider yourself dead to sin and alive to Christ. Not because we are so great, but because Christ is so great. Because we have been saved by Christ and for Christ and through Christ. We have been united to him. And that's a glorious truth. We are forgiven of our sin, not because of ourselves, but because of Christ. And this is why we can put our sin to death. This is why we can walk in the Spirit, not because of ourselves, but because of Christ. This is why we talk on this show so much about Christian character, because it really matters. This is why we talk about the fruits of the Spirit, because as we go out, Peter says that we're always to give a reason for the hope that we have, but to do it with gentleness and respect. This is why our character informs our witness. And there's other examples that we could give in the New Testament of this idea being worked out. But the point is, these are the very things that God is using. He is using in your life. He's using that difficult person to shine you up, to to buff you, to, to make you more like Christ. He's using difficult situations to do the same. So difficult people and difficult situations are not beyond the gaze of God. They are known by God. They are used by God. They, they are vehicles. They are tools that God is using in our life 
to help us to grow to be more like Christ. And for that, we should, can, we should be joyful, knowing that this is God's work in us. And, and the joy of the Lord, as Nehemiah says, is our strength. What we should do in the midst of these situations is our eyes should not be on ourselves. Our eyes should be on Jesus. As, as the writer of Hebrews says in Hebrews 12, that the, Jesus is the author and finisher of our faith. And so we look to Jesus. We trust Jesus. We are united to Christ by faith in Jesus. And he is growing us more and more to be like our Lord and our Savior. He is conforming us into the image and likeness of Christ. And so let this be a reminder. And let this also be an instruction that, that yes, we are to become more like Jesus. And he is using even the means of the cross to make us even more, as we could say, cruciform. That is, that our lives would even more fall in line with his pattern, with his teaching, and that we would obey his commandments, which, by the way, they're not burdensome. They are light because the Lord's promises are yes and amen, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20. And so we can come to the Lord. In fact, he invites us in Matthew 11:28 through 30 to understand that the commandments, the, these, these things are not burdensome and that he invites us and he gives us rest. In fact, even in, even in the midst of this, we need to remember Hebrews 4.16, that our Lord, our high priest, he invites us, he summons us to come before him and to find rest in him. And 20, we've been given 24-7 access. And so we can always take our burdens, we can always take our cares, we can always take our struggles to the Lord. But let's not forget to put our sin to death by the grace of God and to walk in a manner worthy of the calling that we have received because of the grace of God, because of the high cost that Jesus paid for us in our place and for our sin. Let us consider ourselves dead to sin and alive to God, and let us grow evermore in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. And then let us continue to go out and make disciples who make disciples of the risen Lord and Savior. Well, I want to thank you for listening or watching this episode of the Equipping You in Grace podcast. I hope that it's been useful for your life and godliness. And until next time, may the Lord richly bless you and keep you. Thank you for listening to the Equipping You in Grace podcast. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe rate us on the app, and share this with your friends and family on social media. If you want to find us on social media, you can find us on Twitter at Servants of Grace, on Instagram at Servants of Grace, or by searching at Servants of Grace on Facebook. You can also find this episode and many others like it on the front page of our website, servantsofgrace.org.